Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Speaking Generally podcast. I'm Stephen Hussey, with me, George Taylor. And uh, we've been a couple of weeks, George. But yeah, it's been a while. We've found time. And uh, behind me, I, you, I guess you can't see this unless we put this one up on YouTube, but I have the, the classic Zoom wallpaper of a bookshelf behind me. So yeah. You mean a digitally enhanced one? There's not actually books behind you. That's just a... Uh, digital zoom option is it yeah and you know what when you see these all these people on the news and stuff doing it some people i just i just don't believe them george like they'll ship the books in for zoom i just don't believe they're reading all that, that many books because i've seen advertised that companies sell libraries specifically for zoom backgrounds oh that is pathetic so yeah definitely people are bang to rights Market. I know you've read all those books. <laughs> Markets and everything. Wow, Zoom, a library for your Zoom calls. Well, it's like there are there are kind of very high-end, I suppose, like design firms or very high-end bookshops say in London offer library services where they maybe give you every, you know, first folio or folio society edition of all the great English classics if you just want to pad out a lovely townhouse library for the aesthetic. But now with COVID going on, they're suddenly like, oh, we'll, we'll do sort of study backdrops for you and stuff like that. So good on them for, you know, getting... Right getting amongst it but yeah it's very transparent especially you know don't you if a colleague who's never never expressed any literary interest before and you're on your first zoom call together and they've got the complete works of you know all of Tennyson's first editions or something behind them it's just not believable yeah that's I mean there's something encouraging about the fact that people still just equate you know reading a lot of books with intellectualism but it is it's amazing how many people have the is it the insecurity or the vanity to, you know, it needs to be expressed? Like, I do read a lot, by the way, guys. But it, it, would, it would be like me having, I don't know, dumb, like dumbbells and gym equipment behind me for Zoom. <laughs> it's like, but you know I'm not working out. So, like, I'm not big. I don't talk about it. Much like if someone never talks about literature, they're probably not reading a lot. It's very, it is very transparent. Yeah. Well, these are the times we're living Caught in. Caught you, essentially, is what you're trying to say. <laughs> um, well, George, I mean, you don't know this because you're now an expat from the UK, but spring has bloody sprung here. It's, it's sunny as anything. Really? Lovely. And I know you're not a great one for hot weather. It's not your favourite thing, but... Um, I, I mean, I had a right old stroll in the park. There's people everywhere. There's kids on swings, people on the old outdoor gym, people eating ice cream. To, you, if we're dating, this podcast is today the first day where the COVID restrictions have lifted. Uh, I, think it, I think it officially happened a day or two ago. So there's a mm -hmm. real, and Easter's coming up. So there's a real, a little bit of euphoria in the UK as people are sort of emerging, blinking, 20 pounds heavier outside of their house <laughs> in their yeah. old sweatpants and going, oh, I'll have a walk in the park now. Yeah. Such were the week, the week before Easter as well. If 20 pounds overweight and then all the eggs come in, you're in big trouble, aren't you? Oh, man. The, the mad thing is, George, my, all my family are pretty much on like a, a sort of health kick at the moment. I mean, like my mum's working out every day, has been doing these classes, you know, my dad wants to eat healthy. My dad's a hard man to get to work out, to be fair. 
rarely ever works out. But he, you know, he doesn't want to eat badly. But for some reason, even though like, you know, we're all kind of being health conscious, my mum has loaded up on Easter eggs. It, like, <laughs> cannot believe it. And it's, it's just, it's almost like sheer just habit of we just need an abundance an abundance of chocolate in the house do, or do you think it comes from because of covid you know you've got to get the larder stocked up and like the sort of nuclear bunker siege mentality is it just get the eggs in before anyone else does well she uh, i'd like to say that but she has always been this way with uh, sure. with Easter and like we used to i mean to be fair it was always very lovely but we my mum and dad would hide Easter eggs in our garden when we were younger and we would do like an Easter egg hunt and go around and look for them. And that was really fun with my brothers, but, but it always meant they bought, you know, an excess of eggs to hide around. Like Mm. like too many, even for us as three boys. And me and my brothers would have like egg auctions with each other and do a, like a bartering market where we'd like, (sighs) I'll swap you two I'll swap you two of the big kinders for your Rolo egg. That's funny. I dread to think as well how many eggs were just lost to that garden. Like your mom's buying loads because she doesn't have great faith in you as being able to find them. So there's yeah, just yeah. hundreds of like rotten kinder eggs out there. So yeah, I've seen a few that my mum's like been accumulating them over the last week or two. Just like just popping another one in the Amazon basket. And so there is a real... So again... And we're all trying to eat healthy, so I don't know who they're really for, um, unless Easter's going to be the almighty binge of binges um, and just wipe everyone oh. out. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, just one Sunday, just really go nuts. I, I have to say, from my kind of cursory perusal of American supermarkets, they're not huge on chocolate eggs here. I've seen a fair few kind of seasonal treats like Easter bunny shaped marshmallows. There are chocolate eggs, but nowhere near as many as the UK. There's maybe chocolate bunnies and some kind of Easter shapes, but the sort of equivalent of the classic Cadbury egg, big round egg and two chocolate bars, sort of your textbook offering. I've not seen much of that here at all, which has surprised me. And I've seen a bit of um, Cadbury's branded stuff in the UK, but they've done it a bit weirdly. They've just sort of arbitrarily change some of the colour schemes. So the cream egg here has a green, blue and yellow logo rather than a red, yellow and blue logo. The mini eggs, which I think are an absolute Easter staple, come in a small blue bag here. And I think they're glittery as well, which is a bit of a shame. But they're kind of close, but not quite right. Are you going to these like specialist British outlets? (laughs) Exclusively, yeah. No, these are in, you know, Trader Joe's or Wegmans or big, big chains. Right, right. Not Trader Joe's, they only do their own stuff. Wegmans or ShopRite's, you know, big chains, but they just don't seem to, to have the Easter egg thing. And also, Steve, I'm not a religious man, I'm not particularly bothered about what happens over Easter, but it should be a should be a holiday, and there doesn't seem to be any acknowledgement of Easter as a holiday here. Oh, um, really? People, people look like Elizabeth's working on Friday and Monday. Well, I know Americans get much less vacation than anywhere in Europe, so maybe they skimp on the old Easter one. Maybe it's that, yeah. You'd have thought, you know, fairly religious nation that they might have acknowledged it, but apparently not. Yeah, we get Friday and the Monday, don't we? Yeah. We don't get the Friday. Do we get the Friday? Yeah, we do. Yeah, I think we both. Um, oh, God, God bless you, England. There we go. <laughs> um, yeah, so, well... I, I sent you some chocolate, didn't I? I sent you a little gift card for some British foods. 
if you remember. You certainly did, Steve. I, I don't know how much chocolate I ordered, but I ordered lots of biscuits and pickles. Branston, lots of jars of Branston. <laughs> yeah, Branston pickle is a a, 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 a relish, a, you know, yeah. for Americans listening. It's not, it's not just a jar of pickles. We know you can get them in America. Mm. Um, but yeah, well, I'm glad you're keeping yourself afloat there. Uh, as a kind of callback to our earlier moisturiser sort of um, episode, it wasn't a whole episode, was it? But we certainly touched on the topic of moisturising. Um, I've been using a moisturiser, Steve, you know, trying to you know keep myself in good condition. Haven't really factored in, excuse the pun, that it has factor 30 SPF included in the moisturiser. So I've just been using it, you know, just moisturise my face, you know, keep myself in keep myself in good condition been out this weekend roaring sun i've managed to burn up the unfortunately turned parts of the kind of widow's peak of my hair where it, my hair is parted and off my forehead and that kind of small crevice either side there i wouldn't rub moisturizer in there and obviously wasn't paying attention but because it has spf in it those bits have been scorched and i've got these kind of two red horseshoes and actually someone said to me the other day that it looked like I hadn't applied my foundation correctly so uh, <laughs> that's that's what I'm contending with at the moment if you're moisturizing um be wary if it has a an SPF factor in it because you will end up burning parts of your head you'll end up with a little cherry halo like George has on, on his crown um yeah well you're a man who burns very very easily very true uh, your your legs look like a sort of media, a sort of rare steak when whenever you go on holiday. Yeah. Um. Well, mate, I wonder. Uh, I go wonder, on. What have you been up to? Well, that's not. Well, one one thing I've been up to, big thing, is uh, just finished our second ever virtual retreat. By R, um, you don't mean. The two of us not the two of us no our retreat hasn't come sort of been fleshed out yet but um my for those who listen who follow my brother matthew hussey they'll know that we have a big biannual retreat that usually is i mean it's one of the great highlights of our year we do it in florida it's a big old event people from across the world come and it was a uh, it's been a bit of a mess because of a global pandemic over the last year so we debuted our virtual retreat last year and and last week we did our second one george ever uh how how was it because it's i guess a, a very intense the the in-person event being very intense kind of full-on four, four or five days of loads of activities and big kind of community aspect how has that translated to being online is it from yeah. your point of view just getting involved with doing it at the very least it's one of those things that Everyone going, when we first did it, we were all just asking the question of, is this, is this going to work and how is it going to feel? And it's quite amazing. I mean, it's quite a testament to my brother, actually, is how much he often is good at spearheading these things and kind of like rallying us all into doing them. And we're kind of not sure how it's going to work, but we kind of just go for it. And, you know, putting a whole thing online with like, different people in different locations. We film me in England, Matt in the US. It's a big operation. I mean, there's a lot of like 
producing a, of, a TV channel, right? Yeah, there's a lot of technical people. There's like lighting stuff. There's streaming stuff, and and so there's a there's a whole lot into it. But yeah, it's. I think we were quite astonished at how much we were able to bring the feeling of what we do on the retreat to people's homes. And it's kind of really, I mean, it's obviously not, you know, we, we love doing it in person and it's so good getting to see people. And, you know, like, I feel like that's where we do the deepest work we do in our company there where we, you know, spend five days with people and change their lives. And we talk to them through the whole process, but going through it and having, hundreds of people who probably wouldn't be able to come to Florida usually for logistical reasons or whatever visa stuff and all these things. And actually having hundreds on a big stream and like hearing the, you know, seeing them in the chat and catching up, it's kind of like, wow, these virtual things, it made me very bullish on like the potential future for more virtual experiences Mm. because they don't, they don't, ever replace a live event like if you want to go to a live concert there's a visceral magic about that that you you can't just recreate by watching a Kanye West concert in your home but but that you can create a kind of immersive thing where having the communal aspect which is what you want you hear there's a big crowd out there you know this thing is only happening at this time. So there's no like, oh, well, you can sit and watch it on your couch later, which takes away from it, right? It's like, no, we're doing this here and now. This is happening and we're all together. And that's what kind of makes an event special is the the uniqueness of it. So, and, and then just all the bells and whistles, like we had an amazing jazz singer who came onto a, and, and she won Jazz FM's uh, vocalist of the year last year weirdly enough had come to us years ago when she was about 19 had come on some day in london we had and kind of kept you know in the loop with us over the last few years and that's crazy kind of built up her career and and even weirder i saw her with our our previous flatmate henry uh, I remember you talking yeah. about this. That's her. That's fantastic. Yeah, we went to Ronnie Scott's and saw uh, the jazz, a big jazz club in London and saw her sing. And I didn't rem- remember her at the time. I think I barely met her the first time. But she said my name as I walked out the club. I was like, oh, my God, you're Steve, you know, Matt Hussey's brother. Drunk, drunk as a skunk you were, I imagine, as well. Probably she know. actually referred to this time. I didn't know, but she was like, oh, I was so drunk that night. I'm sorry. <laughs> and, uh, I didn't know that, but she was like, oh, my God, like Stephen. And, uh, and yeah, and then she like, basically we got in touch and, uh, yeah, she won jazz vocalist of the year, came on our retreat and sung some songs for us. And she was just really great. And we also just as silly, like just to perform as a kind of an entertainment for the attendees was it? Yeah. Yeah. As a guest and to come and we, we have these evening events and that's where we were able to also inject a lot of the kind of feeling of a party where we kind of had things where we do a little skit with me and my brother dressed up in movie outfits and then we'd screen a film and we, um, you know, we did like a Hollywood night where people, we showed people on their zoom screens and everyone dressed up as like flappers and, uh, you know, Gatsby stuff. So, so it was really cool. But oh, we also had a, an amazing thing that was special. And my friend Michelle will be listening now who works with us, but she she wrangled us uh, an appearance by a guy called Kemp Powers who 
wrote the new Pixar film Soul. Oh, amazing. Yeah, and and he also wrote One Night in Miami, which is now on uh, Amazon Prime. But um, he came and kind of talked about his journey of becoming a screenwriter, you know, later in his life in middle age and like having gone from being a journalist to trying to make the jump to screenwriting. And it was really, really fascinating and kind of moving for everyone, I think. But um, yeah, so we had these really special things that that made it a one-off experience. Uh, Question, like, for... Because everyone's dealing with Zoom, the business I work for is all online classes, and most people, I mean, the pandemic's petering, hopefully, on the trajectory of getting better, but everyone's doing Zoom calls and working this way. How do you guys... I suppose more a question for Matt, but you too. How do you... Because the event coming together brings that energy and as an attendee, you see oh, 500 other people are watching, I'm part of it. But you're just in a room by yourself, but you have to be the energetic, charismatic kind of driving force of things or just as much as on you know a work meeting, you have to look enthused and part of it, even though you're just at home by yourself. How do you bring the energy that you need? Because obviously your real life event has, you know, clapping and music and craziness. How do you replicate that in isolation as the performer? Yeah, I think, I mean, I mean, I do like the hosting duty on the virtual retreat. So I kind of like introduce things and set up segments and stuff. And I, I it genuinely has taken, the boring answer is it has taken a lot of practice to get get used to even talking to nothing on a screen and trying to, you know, give yourself some level of enthusiasm and get into it. And you definitely do start to, you you kind of have to treat it like here we are all together, we're in the room and, you know, you have to treat that stream of just people chatting as like, I try and almost picture like a stadium in my mind and think like, okay, we're like, on stage now talking to people and it's exciting and people are excited to be here and kind of have to get into their mindset a bit. And I know that, you know, Matt's, Matt's like gotten so used to turning it on a dime now that he mm. can just, you know, he's had to do interviews or people have just put him on live on, you know, suddenly he's on TV about it from his home and stuff. So He's definitely. You think he's turning the say the speakers up in his living room or wherever he's filming it from, like really loud to kind of replicate up on stage. Is he is well, he doing that, or is it just entirely in his mind? When he does the retreat, he does have quite a few people in the room with him, which helps. Like he's got like a bunch of sound guys, technical mm. people, Jameson. He's got like a crew around, so he is and his assistant and stuff. So he does almost have a bit of an element of like, okay, there's energy to feed off. Yeah, okay. That helps a lot. Like even here in the room, when I had my younger brother, Harry in the room and just being able to play off him a bit and kind of do stuff and see him laugh at something like that helps a lot of just Mm. a bit of feedback, a bit of, uh, you know, human there. But, but yeah, you, um, I, I think it's one thing I will say, it's a skill really, really worth, trying to get used to and even if it's and I, I I even say this to people in who don't consider themselves like I'm creating content for a living but I remember Warren Buffett talking about how one of the best investments he ever made was in a Dale Carnegie speaking course uh, very old school Dale Carnegie was like an old school personal development guru 
And Warren Buffett did it when he was deftly shy of, of speaking. But, you know, obviously Warren Buffett is now like the public face of Berkshire Hathaway. He's very like engaging and, and good at communicating, but just investing in a level where keep doing things that are weird and uncomfortable for you. Like if it's doing Instagram videos or doing things online or having to present when you, when you can like giving speeches and stuff, because you do just start to click into the headspace faster that you need to, to present. Are you saying that because your prediction is that lots of us will be doing this in the future online, regardless of how COVID pans out Uh, and it's therefore a good skill to have? Yeah. I think the zoom, whether it's the zoom interview or the zoom meeting or the online presentation, I I think that stuff isn't going to go away and we're going to probably live in a hybrid world is where I think things will go. I just don't think anyone is going to be able to, you know, if you want to like have impact in your job or lead a team and all that stuff, you're going to have to be okay with camera shyness is going to be a difficult impediment for some people and people who freeze when suddenly all the eyes in the meeting room are on them is very common. And, And just the more you get into you kind of have to kill your ego a lot and you have to get into what you're, why what you're saying matters. I think instead of worrying about what's in everyone's head right now about me, what are they thinking about me? How, are they, how is this going over? When I used to do that a lot, all, I would suddenly like panic, lose my breath, lose my focus. It I suppose was, that with your, like say with your retreat as you're hosting in front of hundreds of people it's stressful but you know they're there for you and they've chosen to be there and they've paid to be there and they're open to your content right whereas maybe i don't know doing a fairly like rote job that you then have to present to other people for you other people might think well why is this guy here right that there's a different level of anxiety that comes with often comes with a lot of the zoom stuff people are having to do yeah yeah and i think it's I think it's new for a lot of people. I think a lot of people haven't haven't really faced it before. And you're seeing yourself, you're seeing how you come across. Um, but yeah. Yeah, that, that must be a big thing, right? If you're standing on stage or Matt's on stage, he's not watching himself in a monitor, whereas doing it now, he's, or you, or you're thinking, oh God, do I like wink every time I say this or something, you know, like these little yeah. ticks that you wouldn't be aware of is going to like cause this sort of self-consciousness loop. And they're, both, they're, both, they're both hard in different ways like I still still feel I'm learning a lot about stage delivery and it's it's amazing how deep a craft that goes you know there, there's there's so many levels to competence I think in speaking and on stage and you know in podcasts I know you know um perhaps I'm tempting fate here with our listeners but <laughs> if, I, if I listen to a podcast an interview podcast with someone, even if there's a subject where I'm like, oh, this guy's a neuroscientist, that might be quite an interesting one. I can be immediately tuned out by, I, I don't really like the way he speaks. And so mm. I'm kind of bored quickly. And within three minutes, I've turned it off. And it wasn't even to do with the content. I was just like, I don't, yeah. I don't think I can listen to this for two hours. And that's it. So I, it does feel like, you're going to, at some point, you're going to need to present your ideas. So it's worth, it's worth investing in. It takes me. That's on- funny as well, isn't it? Because let's say there, that person, the expert will have presented in 
I don't know, academic circles or whatever, but I suppose they're always a much, it's like a very niche audience that maybe aren't interested in the delivery, but purely in the content. Yeah, and an academic, I mean, academic crowds do appreciate people who present well as well, because probably, probably they don't get it as often, but also, yeah. it, also they're kind of willing to just sit and soak up the information, so they're kind of like a, uh, you know, captured crowd there. Mm, true. If you're just there for entertainment, you're like, ah, oh, I want it to be interesting. I want it to be fun. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Worth investing in. I've always found it, it's been a long journey for me. Like I've, it's taken me a lot of time and I feel I still have a lot to learn. So it's something I think you'll have to do regularly over and over again, but you do, you do get better. Hmm. Um, yeah. It was fun to do the little host thing though. It's quite fun sort of, you know, doing a bit of setup, George, crack a little joke or two. Are you the first person people see when they log in and it starts? It's you, yeah. is it? And, and I'm they playing, go, oh, for... I'm playing a sort of Jimmy Fallon Conan role, you yeah, know? Rest. Give I'm sort rest. of like, you know, welcome everyone, hey, ring-a-ding-ding, -ding. you know, drum, get, give me a drum check, you know, put and kind of thing. And it's quite good playing that role because you just sort of have a have a little chat and then pass it over. So I recommend... I've seen, you, I've seen you kind of compare a wedding before. If it's anything like that, then God help you. Yeah. Uh, cool, come on. That one. That one. <laughs> um, yeah. So so it was a very good one. And it definitely... Yeah. It In the macro scheme of things, I feel like there's the world... The possibilities that have opened up in the sort of COVID world where... I just think it wouldn't have been on many people's radar entertainment-wise or event-wise. I feel like this may this has probably been the start of a great shift where there'll just be it will become much more regular to attend online events for things. And, and like you said there the, at the start of your description, right? It's just people who wouldn't silly like wouldn't be able to get a visa can now attend your event. Yeah, that's degree. huge, and that's just a huge. Just, massively opens a market up an audience up and an opportunity up for people doesn't it it's really exciting combine that with the old vr which i've been using a lot and again i'm very excited about because i've been loving my oculus and then i'm like man vr with these sort of things like it completely makes sense to me uh with how immersive that with how immersive virtual reality in your home is now to me, it's a matter of time. Like it really makes sense. The one of our one of Elizabeth's friends, another academic, is attending a big like, philosophy academic conference. It's very well funded by a big body. Everyone attending the conference has been sent an Oculus or some equivalent VR headset. You know, four hundred people have been sent them so that they'll all be taking part in it virtually. And, wow. Yeah, it's interesting, but also it's an academic conference, right? Like how how virtually immersive does that event need to be, right? I can understand like a music event or a show, but it's going to be someone reading quite a dry paper about, I don't know, like yeah, Hegel. You don't need VR for that. You have the virtual version of the, the awkward chats over sandwiches as well. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I... Uh, Oh, I've been loving it though. Some of some of the VR is like the early days of the internet, where like mm. it's just not. There's like early adopters in, like. But there's this game me and my brother play a lot, which is like a sports game, but in zero gravity. 
but it's funny entering it because it's it's just like shrieking children as you play it <laughs> and you're like the game is really good but it's clearly just like parents have just bought their kids an oculus to shut them up over the pandemic and it's just yeah. like just kids in these games well, so you think it's like there's a lot of really good technology or programs that are just being wasted on the wrong audience is that how yeah, it almost across? almost like i feel like lots of people haven't discovered how fun it is yet and when i think of transposing like social media to vr it's like well the the added value there you can have of feeling like oh i'm in the room with granddad or i'm in the room with mm. you know my cousin across the world but i can actually see a version of them and sit and chat like it adds a whole immersive element that you, you know, yeah, it, it just suddenly suddenly adds a lot when you're just in the virtual room. You're like, oh, I feel I've escaped my entire surroundings now and I'm in, you totally buy into the world you're in, you know? So yeah, yeah. I, um, yeah, it's just, it's just pretty cool. But I hear Apple are like furiously working on their own one. So clearly these big tech companies are starting to feel like they should claim some of that space. Yeah, that's cool. Um, on to something else, George. All right, This is just a random thing I just wanted your opinion on. Um, what's your opinion on buying a home? <laughs> um, I, I think I know where this is going. But, um, <laughs> I've varied, varied opinions based on circumstance, location, personal preference, conditions, aesthetic appreciations. There are various different opinions of which I'm not going to pin a flag in either way, but um, my life's very transient, so at this stage it's not something I even think about to be able to offer you a, an argued response about why it's a stupid waste of money. <laughs> um, I, I don't have a... I think it's all, like, depends on what you're trying to do, but... Um, our, our friend John keeps complaining to me because he's just moving now into another rental house with his partner and their new baby. And he's getting all manner of grief from his family and hers that they're not buying. And he's, he's sort of written a whole... He's got a bit of sort of skin in the game now because he wrote a whole piece... He's written a screed about it, hasn't he? <laughs> he wrote a whole piece on his blog about like why people in the uk are completely nuts about buying houses they're they're way too obsessed with it and it gets pushed as a kind of like it's right for everyone and it's always a great move financially and basically he was running the numbers and saying you could make a possibly a better return just investing the money in fact probably would and also you no one ever talks about the fact you lose flexibility when you buy you may not want to stay where you are for very long. You know, just there's a lot of associated costs with it. But um, it's funny, the more, you know, because it was sort of funny to hear him talk about it because, like, basically his partner's mum is like, it, you know, I think I think as well for people with daughters as a form of security of, like, you know, is he really in this? Why does he not want to buy a house? What's wrong with him? Like, and they're not married. They've already got, ba they've got a baby. They've got a baby, but they're not married. So they're like, well, he doesn't want to marry you. He hasn't bought a house. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, it's it just was, his personal insecurities coming out in a blog post. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. And not that he, I mean, he, he's very happy in it with his baby and partner, but it's just funny to, the, the more people I've spoken to, even just casually, 
he is right in that there is this bizarrely uniform opinion across seemingly all of the UK that you just you just must buy a house as soon as you can. And I, I do you think it's the same in America? I think it's probably similar, isn't it? Yeah, it probably, probably is. I mean, across the US, I imagine there's like hugely different. If you live in Manhattan, you're not going to buy an apartment, are you, if you're 30? If you live in Wyoming, it's probably a lot easier to get access to buying property. So I don't know. Um, I imagine it is a bit different. The UK is much more of a sort of finite resource. Like property resources are more limited. So, And the market has only really gone up and up and up in the last sort of 15, 20 years, so you can certainly see the value returns. If you're if you're happy to stay in one place, I can kind of see where people are coming from. But yeah, I come from a position like the argument of you're trapped in one place. I find that very off-putting at this stage of my life, but maybe I'll feel differently at a different time. Yeah. Well, people say like the pandemic in some ways spurred a bit of a buying boom because people realised they might want to buy bigger places outside of the city yeah. or something like that. But but then to me, it's like in some ways the, the pandemic says, well, I don't know, maybe I want a lot of flexibility in case things mm-hmm. change quickly <laughs> and I want to quickly yeah. get out of somewhere or quickly move somewhere. Like Maybe it's different if you've got three children. They're going to be in schools. Like realistically, you probably, it's less likely you're going to be moving and upping sticks as frequently if you've got an established family where multiple members of the family have kind of commitments, children as much as adults, right? Whereas if you are like a young buck or like whatever like that, then you buying a property doesn't necessarily make much sense now because yeah, you might be clipping your wings a little bit. Yeah. I'll be really curious to see in like a decade if the millennials change a lot in there because the, the next decade will be like millennials are sort of entering their sort of prime buying years. It'll be really interesting to see if, one of the defining aspects of millennial right is spending money on experiences and i suppose <laughs> buying a home could be either the epitome of that or the antithesis of that right it's like buying a home and renovate it and design it and furnish it and look after it and all those things it could that in of itself becomes an incredible experience but it could also just be my wings are clipped and i can't have all these other experiences that i you know, I'm spending money on holidays and eating out and now I've got to cancel all that for my mortgage. That it, it could I can see it going either way. If if that is a definitive characteristic of a millennial, then yeah, that could go either way very easily. Yeah. I imagine it will have to be just reduced somewhat because like when millennials have a look uh, have had a bit more financial insecurity at the beginning of their career, although they're catching up now, but like I imagine just because of the sheer variation of lifestyles more so than like, there's just a lot less expectations and a lot more choice now. So some could choose more people never could choose to live abroad or choose to be nomad. Like the digital nomad thing didn't exist like 30 years ago. Or like, I imagine just because of certain factors, there'd be a bit less house buying uh anyway i'm living in rented accommodation at the moment and i have to say i don't know if it's you know five hundred thousand pounds worth of annoyance that it would be to buy a house but not being able to you know put a painting up or knock a knock a wall down but you know make any kind of change that's slightly invasive to the home is really frustrating and if you're in a position where you have the means to take control of that 
I can see that being a very appealing thing, mm. but it comes with the conditions of also knowing I'm always going to be working here. I'm always going to be based here. It's a good place to raise my kids. There's good schools or whatever. Then it's kind of maybe more worth that trade-off. But yeah, I think for, again, for me personally, I'm very happy to just be stuck with, you know, decor or furnishings that I'm not in love with because I can leave I'm moving apartment in June right so I've got the opportunity to do that if I want it's I don't know yeah it's it's a trade-off I think I don't have any of the the big aspects for the other side of the argument but I'm, I'm open-minded to see that there is a good argument for both where are you going in June oh we're staying within staying in Princeton is staying within the same housing complex but we're moving to a bigger place um like a two three bed apartment so plenty of room for you as well oh there we go yeah that's what that's really that's what this was all about really there's, there's a space for you from the end of june our day will come yeah although um, i can't guarantee you a visa i'm afraid <laughs> well more full year then <laughs> um, well on this house buying thing to extend to a larger book i've been reading uh, you know, house buying is seen as like a particularly sort of Anglo-American, I guess, sort of thing. John, John's website is not a book. John's website is not a book. No. <laughs> um, I, uh, you can go check that out if you want. John, no, nosology of thought. So there you go. <laughs> I love the idea. He's going to have a huge uptick in readership there. Um, the, uh, yeah, this book I've been reading like speaking of like sort of Western ideals and things, because like house buying is a thing that isn't, isn't as popular, like in central Europe and stuff and places like France, there's big renters, but I've read this book called the weirdest people in the world, George. And it was all about um, how the West became psychologically peculiar and particularly prosperous is the subtitle. Uh, it was sort of named one of the notable nonfiction books of last year. Mm-hmm. Is it why? guy called joseph uh hemrick uh and it's kind of this big sort of comprehensive study uh of looking at kind of saying why western certain western behaviors that are taken as a given are actually extremely distinct not only in his history but even like across the world now and that the kind of the western default is to kind of think that there's you know a lot of the things we do are a kind of fairly natural or things that people would you know would do or choose to do if they could but um he's kind of showing basically this there's a very set of set of very peculiar ideas here and he kind of makes this big historical story of why that is and you know it kind of ends up saying that human nature you know there's obviously you there's obviously shared things about human nature but human nature also weirdly is kind of very non-uniform and values just kind of get shaped by like the institutions and the culture around you and they can even change like you know just how generally altruistic people will be like for some reason like western people are more altruistic to strangers and they're less there's like a they're less deferential to their peers and their kin basically whereas like in certain other cultures that have more kinship there's there's seen as no problem about unfairly being nepotistic towards your relatives or towards 
you know, the people around you. And it's seen as okay to maybe cheat strangers or to bend the rules because right. they're strangers. They they don't, you know, they're not part. Yeah. Whereas like the Western thing has very much grown up with a, a very impersonal, a faith in impersonal systems like markets and democracy and stuff to the point where it's like, because people trust the rules of the game and the transactions, they're more likely to be cooperative with strangers. Cause it's like, we know they'll, they, they understand the rules of the market and the game so we can trust them in this transaction and we should look out for a stranger if something's happening and all, all these kind of different things. But like, and then just like typical Western things where like Western is very obsessed with self-actualization, with their own individual development. They're less deferential to elders and tradition and, um, you know, all these forms of kind of more atomized life. And he traces it right back to, weirdly, the fact that the church during sort of centuries ago put a massive taboo on cousin marriages. And because of that, his claim is because of things like that, the way the church broke down certain things of, I guess, certain fam familial ties of intermarriage and things like that, there became a much more individualistic, uh, less kin-based society. And there's a greater need to trust. Yeah, a greater need to trust people outside of your immediate realm, right? Yeah, and I guess people being less interrelated with each other and these things. And then there's like the kind of, you know, Protestant, Protestant story of whether Christianity sort of is compatible with more capitalistic societies, which, which people like Max Weber claimed. But it's, so it's kind of all these big claims, but... It was just kind of really interesting to see your own culture observed, you know, from a bird's eye lens from the outside and to say, like, all these things are actually would be quite weird in a lot of other cultures, in other continents, other places. And they would be seen as quite even just the way we raise families quite individualistically. And, you know, that sort of thing would all just be seen as very strange and you know, we he talks about like a lot of other cultures that are more kin-based would have much more of a relationship with shame being a huge thing. Like the possibility of being shame, a shame to your parents, to your people around you, to your community. Whereas he says Westerners have more of a sense of like individualized guilt, which is like an internal thing, but it's not to do with, you're not worried your society, your society around you is going to shame you, you know? Um, yeah, so it's it's all very interesting, but yeah, I mean, I guess I'm just recommending it. It's an interesting book, um, the weirdest people in the world. If you want to take a uh, look, is the, is the kind of underlying theme then the the assumption is that Western values are a kind of like neutral setting by which others are compared against, because any comparison of different value systems is going to appear weird to the other, right? Is that like just with the title and everything's like, oh, actually, we're a bit weird and we wouldn't think it. Is it because we, as Westerners, you kind of assume that what we do is just the sort of default correctness? Yeah, and I think I think what he's saying is even it, there's there's nothing inevitable about a Western mindset, and there's it's not not binary. It's not like oh, some cultures uh, weird. By the way, is an acronym which stands for Western educated industrialized rich democratic societies and some some societies have borrowed parts of 
the weird model, right? And there might be like, I don't know, Japan have a democratic system, right? And a certain industrialized, you know, certain parts of weird culture or whatever. But so it's not like a binary thing where like you are or you aren't. But but um, I think it's just kind of trying to get a perspective of how localized it is and how, yeah, I, I guess it's saying like, just because, you know, we're steeped in our own Western culture very heavily, there's an assumption that there's a kind of, oh, this is how people think and how people live and how people think about their individual lives or what they aspire to and their goals. And I think he, you know, he just tries to say like that, even our relationship with time, like how much we break down our units of time and think about obsessively about how we're maximizing time and things like that are, are just like specific things to our culture. Um, yeah. yeah. So I thought it was very, interesting. very interesting just to get that broad perspective, almost paired with that is a different idea, but paired with that book that I talked about a while ago called the future is Asian, where this guy was making quite a, quite a hyperbolic case, but a case for saying like Asian values, actually Asia was kind of the apex of civilization for a long time in human history. And the Western moment is actually quite small comparatively. And his long thesis was that we'll shift back to Asian cultural dominance in some way. But, but again, that book was trying to say Western dominance, Western cultural flourishing, these ideals have not, are not like a default of human society. Unless you live in the West. Unless you live in the West. Um, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Um, I, I don't know, because it seems that, it does seem that Western ideals definitely have some kind of mimetic quality because they seem to get, get exported very, yeah, okay, sometimes they've been exported very violently, but they've also, they seem to be quite sticky in that people who adopt them seem to keep them a lot for a long time, like cultures that seem to adopt democratic institutions and stuff. So, so and like, a lot of people look to America as kind of certain ideals of freedom and things. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure how, you know, the Western model may be quite good at spreading, but maybe that's localized as well. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I having not read it. I can't comment, but um, yeah. Intriguing. <sighs> so you go. We're a couple of old weirdos. <laughs> That was you, it, was it? That whole explanation, just to be able to say that. Um, have you read anything enlightening? Um, I've read a couple of novels, one of which I finished earlier today that I despised, and uh, I shan't be sharing the name of it for, um, for that very reason. Um, you don't like, what, you don't want to run down a bit, uh, an author? No, yeah, I just, uh, I just, I don't think I'll ever think about it again, so I'm going to take it to my grave. <laughs> Um, I'm reading at the moment, Steve, it's next to me, so I'll show it in shot. It's a collection of essays by a guy called Mark Grief. Uh, it's called Against Everything, and he is the uh, one of the founders of that literary journal, N Plus One, I think it's called. Um, yeah. And I've read maybe the first three or four essays. They're, they're very good, very well written, very kind of um, taking positions that maybe aren't the conventional positions to take, but really well articulated. I've not maybe read you know, a fifth of it and he might go in different ways. But um, yeah, really enjoying it. I don't often read collections of essays, um, but so far very impressed with this one. Um, 
next on my list to read is Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry, who passed away about three or four days ago. So I kind of feel indebted to reading that novel while I'm in, in America, kind of doing my explorations of the frontier, so to speak. Not, I mean, not really, but um, yeah, he's that won the Pulitzer Prize in the, in the 80s. And it's one of the great American novels that I've not touched on. So that's next for me. It's about 800 pages long, quite a big beast, but sort of universally loved. So looking forward to that. Well, as something we can read together, George, I've just received uh, the second Proust novel. I just ordered the third and fourth. So which, how many have you read? Uh, two and a half. I'm halfway through the third one, but I left my copy in the UK, so I've reordered it here. So for new for new listeners, this year we're reading Proust. That's <laughs> one of our things. Uh, Should we do a podcast where we just read it out? Well, yes, obviously. It's uh, be good listening. Is it is it in public domain yet? Yeah, probably is. Ulysses just maybe the French maybe the French is, but I doubt the translations are. Yeah, Ulysses crossed over to public domain a few years ago, so probably. Well, I'm glad you're piping on some books, George, and we will be back with some more frothy book chat amongst other worldly topics. I feel like we covered the gamut today. We really uh, free-formed in some big big issues, technology, culture, Western Mahuasi Retreat. <laughs> Uh, public speaking so there's a plenty of meat in the sandwich there um thank you very much for joining as ever we will see you real soon was that was that aimed at who was joining that me or the listeners thank you thank you for joining george and well because but but then it sounds like i'm just joining you like it's your podcast and i'm just joining you you're joining not sure if i'm happy not sure (laughs) if i'm happy with that it makes it sound as if i've just been invited along you you have and you you're lucky. Come on, enough, you're lucky enough to be invited back each time. Bloody hell! <laughs> um, you can e- like you can email the podcast s h. Uh, I might Hussey. send an email to someone because I'm getting a bit. S h s h at gmail dot com or at Stephen H R C on Instagram, and uh, send us a DM or an email. Let us know what you're thinking. Um, all right, thanks. My lovely co-host. The pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye.